to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the fate for jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a Grammy Award-winning saxophone player from Boston, Massachusetts, Jane Bloom. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Mrs. Jane Bloom with us. Ma'am, thank you for joining us. Oh, pleased to be here. (laughs) Well, can you tell the people about yourself, like your education, your background, and then we'll get into it. Well, I'm a saxophonist composer, and uh, I've been playing the soprano saxophone uh, in the jazz idiom for over 40 years, uh, creating a body of original music and starting a record company and a publishing company and and uh, have had quite a journey uh, through the world of jazz. <laughs> uh, from the time I started uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, I was a graduate of uh, Yale University and Yale Music School. And uh, uh, right since then, I've been a New Yorker living in New York City and playing and performing and recording. Uh, both on my own label and, and and some major labels as well, too. And uh, uh, last 22 years, I've been a professor at the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music, so I've been involved working a lot with young people, uh, trying to trying to pass the message to a, a younger generation of musicians. So that's, that's a, you know, a thumbnail. <laughs> Good way to go about it. Mm-hmm. And yes, I know you mainly off soprano saxophone. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure the people mm-hmm. do know you mainly off that. Mm-hmm. And Ivy League jazz programs. We had one other person who was a Princeton saxophone player. Uh, how do you compare those to the conservatories? Well, you know, I remember, you know, this is a while ago. <laughs> you have to remember this is quite a while ago. But I was the kind of person, Leander, I was interested in the world of ideas. I wasn't interested in going to a conservatory. So if, you know, you're the kind of person that's interested in ideas, going to a, a, a university, you know, being around great thinkers uh, from all kinds of disciplines, and I'm not just talking about music, really affected me, affected how I think about music, affected the kind of people I met, kind of people I played with. Um, it, it was a profound, different different path. It was a different pathway. Did your parents know you were going to major in music when you were there? Or was it just like, I decided to focus on that? <laughs> well, I think they always knew I was a musician. I don't know. I think it was my decision uh, you know, into my, my college career when I finally knew there was nothing else that I could be. I think I tried <laughs> some other directions, but then it was very apparent there was nothing <laughs> you know, else that I really could be but uh, a musician. So um, that, that became apparent <laughs> as my schooling went on. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> so why did, after you graduated, you moved to New York City, and how was that? Scary. <laughs> I had I, I knew some people you know from New Haven who had come come to uh, to New York before me. Uh, yeah, the interesting music there was an interesting music community, Leander, that was that was uh, you know really nourishing in in the uh, New Haven in the mid nineteen seventies. I, I think that people have written about it, but if I went down the list of all the musicians who I was around and in contact with in music in uh, New Haven, it's it's startling that all these great musicians were in one 
place, one geographical place at this p- kind of particular time. And and many of my collaborators um, who I perform with today were from uh, people who I met then. So um, everybody from uh, Mark Halias to Mark Dresser to um, Ray Anderson, uh, Anthony Davis was from there, uh, Wadada Leo Smith, um, Dwight Andrews, I mean, I, uh, Jerry Hemingway. I could go down a list of very, very creative people who all happened to be in New Haven in the mid-1970s. Ray Anderson So that, was, that also affected me, you know? Yeah. Ray Anderson was my undergrad professor, so I do know him. Aha! <laughs> was he the same way as he is now, back then? Sure. And so was his uh, colleague, George Lewis, who was also at Yale at the same time. So uh, we had a lot, a lot of trombone influences. <laughs> <laughs> He's a character. I like him, though. I love him to death. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you come down here, and how did you integrate yourself into the jazz scene then? Because now it's completely different. Oh, what a different world it was. It was the loft scene. <laughs> Trying to play with musicians who were performing in lofts like Ali's Ali, Jazzmania. Uh, there was a place, I think my first loft gig was a place called The Brook. I did a, you know an independent concert myself and bassist uh, Kent McClagan. I was doing duets with him and recording with him early on in my career. And I can remember my, I think that was my first self-produced concert in New York City. It was It was in a little place in, in Chelsea. <laughs> okay. Um, but it, it slow process of the people that I was meeting and, and sitting in and playing with, everyone from vocalist Jay Clayton, uh, vocalist Sheila Jordan, um, uh, you know, uh, to some of the early moments I had, uh, I, I studied for a little while with George Coleman and played with his octet and played with him a few times. And, you know, it's 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 a slow ball that gets rolling very slowly. <laughs> that's that's how it happens. But uh, un- unlike uh, other musicians, I was also trying to uh, produce my own records, produce my own concerts, pre- present original music, my music, um, from a very early stage in my career. Unlike, you know, the usual apprenticeship that most musicians have with people, you know, before they step out on their own, I sort of went into it full force right from the beginning. Do you think that benefited you more? Well, it, it's a difficult road. <laughs> it takes time, you know. Uh, at that time, uh, Carla Blay was running something called the New Music Distribution Service, which was a place for independent musicians who were record- making, remember, LPs. Remember, this was LPs at the time. <laughs> How to get them out, uh, distributed to both critics and radio and stuff. And I was one of many who was just try- you know, trying to go it, uh, uh, the independent route. Um, and I had a lot of inspiration from from others around me, you know, to... Pretty much just learn how to make a record and how to distribute it. You just learn trial by fire. (laughs) I didn't know how. I I I learned just by doing it. (laughs) Well, I know you were with Columbia at one point. So that versus the independence. Could you tell me the pros and the cons of both? Because I know people who are like, I only want to go with a major label. And I know some people that swear up and down that independent is the route they're going to go. Well, you know, I, I started my career as an independent artist and then recorded a little bit on Enja Records. And uh, after that journey, um, George Butler at CBS Records found me. <laughs> and I was able to record two, two recordings on CBS. And I have to say that my background 
both as not not just uh, as a performing, you know, improvising artist, but as a composer, arranger, producer, and record producer, stood me in good stead because I was one of the very few artists that CBS ever allowed to manage their own budget. It's because I had done it before uh, and had a record. Uh, so, yeah, it definitely affected my experience there. Uh, I had two records, and, and like many others at CBS, it didn't last long. Wayne Shorter, Tim Byrne, and I, and Wayne Shorter, I think we were all, we were all kicked out at the same time or something. But uh, I, it was a hell of a run <laughs> when you see what a, a major record company can do. Um, it it's, certainly gets you out there. So why do you think they, this is just something that I'm curious about. Why do you think the major labels stopped pushing jazz? Because you're right. At that same time, they swept everyone out CBS from RCA, from Columbia, from et cetera. Yeah, we're talking um, 1980s. Um, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not a business person, per se, uh, to know why that happened. Uh, it's... I. The music and its recorded medium, it's always been a struggle. Uh, it's always gone in cycles, you know, down and up, down and up, disappears, comes back, disappears, comes back. There's something about this music that doesn't go away, though. <laughs> uh, that's my feeling about it. And uh, it's music that doesn't go away, and um, whether the commercial industry is with me or not, uh, you know, my MO is just full full steam ahead. I mean, I'm, I'm still I'm just doing my music with, whether it's supported or not. Uh, uh, I'm finding a way to get it out there because I, I feel that it's important. That I do agree with. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I think that people like you I really love is that you're willing to take risk on a whole bunch of different types of projects. From your duets, from your world music, which led to you for... Example, the Grammy you won for the best surround sound. I don't understand why artists, especially instrumentalists, don't spend the amount of time necessary to actually engineer their albums to that standard because a lot of jazz enthusiasts have those hundreds of thousands of dollars sound systems. It's hard, but uh, thank goodness I met and have collaborated for many years with the great legendary audio engineer Jim Anderson. <laughs> Um, who who helped me go down that road. Um, and it was our collaboration, my music and his recording genius, <laughs> to be honest, that, that put it together to record a, a jazz trio and surround sound that when you listen to it, to me, it sounds like an orchestra. It's so sounds rich. Amazing. It's so rich. <laughs> and uh, for everyone who knows, that's Early Americans, that album. So if you mm -hmm. never heard it or... If you have a nice sound system, please do yourself the favor and listen to that. Uh, so how does he record versus normal people? Is there any special thing he does? Well, we, we, you should definitely get him on. You should podcast with Jim. I'm sure there's all kinds of technical talk he could talk to you about. But if I were to describe to you, uh, you know, in, the, in Studio B and in, in what was Avatar Studios is where I would record the satellite system of microphones that's around me, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, overwhelming. Uh, and it's his uh, knowledge and technical expertise that knows exactly where to put them and how to mix them and how to master them. <laughs> okay, it's a, a, I, it's a very detailed process, very detailed process. That's a whole other conversation. I guess you're right. I have to get it to with him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You should. Absolutely should. Okay, but... Since I even mentioned some of your albums, let's talk about the one 
that you just did with Allison Miller. Had her on before. Oh. Love her to death. I think she's one of the great percussion drummers of this era by far. And what made you decide to do a duet with it? I know you've done duets before. Well, you know, she and I had played a little bit. Allison had, had played with me in my trio and, and my quartet in, 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 a, in a context where, I'm, you know, I'm sort of leading the band a few times. But there was this one duet concert that we did on Zoom. At the, it was one of those new school events, you know, because we both are on, on the faculty of the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music. And uh, it was back last year in the middle of the pandemic, you know, we couldn't play live. And we went on Zoom, right? <laughs> And we just improvised. We didn't know what the heck we were going to do. And even as as bad as Zoom can be, you know, because people don't realize it with Zoom, there's this terrible delay, you know, that you have to deal with. Um, but there was something that clicked about playing freely together. It, we just clicked. I don't know how else to say it. She felt it. I felt it. And so that was the germ of the idea that, that came as the pandemic went on. Is, uh, I had learned... Um, having worked with my bassist and now engineer, Mark Helias, uh, about how to play remotely with somebody uh, with much, much less uh, delay. <laughs> and then uh, how to record ourselves in a professional manner. And uh, I, I mean, I could describe how we did it. But I asked yeah. Allison if she'd like to give it a shot. And she she was so game. Uh, you know, if, you have to remember, we were so desperate to play, you know. <laughs> Here we were stuck in our, our homes and, and we couldn't, you know, go out and play in venues. So we had to find a way to connect, you know. <laughs> and how many days did it take to record? Or how many sessions you had by Zoom? Five Tuesdays. That was it. Five Tuesdays. We recorded like a couple of hours. Sometimes it went a little longer. Sometimes it went a little, little bit less. But we just looked so looked forward to these afternoons where we were just put on, on the mics and the recordings, and just play with each other. And that's where this album came from. We selected some of the tracks from all of this recording. And what, the tracks, what made you decide that? Well, it's, it's always hard to know. You know, they were the ones that we agreed on, you know, when there's two people, you know, somebody likes this one or somebody else likes the other one. But in fact, Allison and I uh, were pretty much on board with the pieces that we thought... Uh, as well as being exploratory and, and uh, taking your ear on a journey, they had a, a, a certain kind of compositional and, and continuity to them that's common among people who've improvised for a long time, <laughs> that there's a kind of maturity about how they organize their thoughts and how they play. And those were, those were the ones that I think uh, came through to the, the final track list. Because you remember, it is a recording and for people to listen to, you know. Understood. And I need to know, how did you two originally meet? Good question. I think I can remember doing a, a creative music concert outdoors with Art Barron. <laughs> In uh, one of those outdoor park concerts, it was, you know, creative music. Art was putting together a group of musicians to play some pieces, uh, creative music pieces. And I remember I was part of it. There we were in the middle of 34th Street in that, that little triangular park. I think Allison was, she was playing drums <laughs> on, one, on one of those concerts. I think that's the first time. I think, I think. We should, we should double check with Allison, but that's my earliest memory. <laughs> okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Still good. So 
Since you mentioned that you were desperate to play during the pandemic, so how did the pandemic affect you? You did get an album out of it, so at least that's a pro. Well, Leander, I had to do something. <laughs> you know, I, you know, you just you can't not do any. I, it, we just had to play, and then we had to figure out how to play, how to you know play with it. You know, because we're improvisers, we relate to each other in the moment. You know, so we had to figure it out. <laughs> You know, we had to figure it out, and we did. <laughs> it, it took some experimentation, though, to, to come up with a process that worked. And if you if you like, I could describe it to you. But it's um, the sure reason the like sound quality is it, the way it is. If you don't mind, you don't have to give the sure, whole sure. thing. <laughs> okay. We found a, a a music program called Sonobus S O N O B U S that allows musicians. No, it's not like Zoom. There's no picture or anything. It's just audio. Mm-hmm allows you to play with one another with very, very little delay, okay? So we each get that program, and that's that's how we're listening to each other through headphones in our different locations and playing with each other. It's, it feels almost like we're there, you know? It really feels much different than Zoom, okay? Then we turn on Zoom, and we look at each other because we need the, we, we want the visual. We want, you want to see yes. that the other person is there. But we turn off the sound because we're using the other program for sound. We're using the Zoom just to have that nice feeling that your collaborator is there, just like you and I are looking at each other, right? Okay. The next step is that instead of recording using this Sonobus program, basically we each in our own location set up very fancy microphones (laughs) and recorded into our own recording platform. So... Even though we're playing together, I'm just recording the saxophone part. Mm-hmm. Allison's just recording the drum part, but with very, very high quality. Okay? So imagine that you have these two tracks that have been recorded, but you have to put them together and line them up in the correct time. <laughs> right? Yes. You have, let's just say you have these two tracks, right? But how do, how do you line them up so it sounds like what we heard when we were playing on the the software, Right? So what you do is something called a clap test. You each, you know, clap into your mics and you try to line them up. And that's exactly what you do. You take each of those tracks with a clap test on it and you line up the clap test. And that's accurately what you were hearing when you were playing with the other person. (laughs) And that's, the rest is the magic of post-production, you know, mixing and mastering and all that, which, uh, you know, I know folks know about but essentially, that's it. That's that's how we did it. No, that's great. <laughs> I don't venture into that more. I should, as a musician <laughs> myself. But do you? Are you going to start teaching this in your in your conservatory when you go back? Well, I, I have been teaching with someone who's a, a very uh, smart practitioner of, of remote performance and recording. Now, her name is Sarah Weaver. Uh, but she uses even much more sophisticated software than I'm talking about. When we do concerts with her ensembles, we're using something called Jack Trip software, which is much more technical, takes more time, and is even better. <laughs> Let's just say it's even better. <laughs> with, our, uh, with our software, you can do maybe a duet, maybe a trio, but you can't do anything, you know, large ensemble. With Jack Trip software uh, for larger ensembles, you can have like 15, 14, 15 people and still play with one another without any delay. That's what people should know without that delay. You know, that is amazing. So, do you think 
live music is going to go down that path more? No, no, no. <laughs> But this is something that we had we had to have because there's problems, you know, with you know, with performing and uh, everybody's got different risk assessment, you know. <laughs> so, yes, that is true too. Yes. Yeah, I'm just uh, you know this fall I'm just doing outdoor concerts. I mean, uh, some outdoor venues. That's it. Um, That's it. Even when yeah. the winter comes, you're not going to move indoors. Well, as I, as I watch things change and get better, let's certainly hope things get better. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Fully understand. Okay. Yeah. So, do you think this is going to affect music long term? Just the whole COVID Corona situation. Well, it has already. It's affected me already. I mean, I I recorded a completely improvised album with Mark Elias for the first time in my life. Not, not, and this is somebody who I've improvised with my whole career, you know. But I never made an album with this person. Then I, I do, I do another one with Allison, completely improvised. We didn't plan anything. <laughs> I've, I've never done that before. <laughs> You've done practically everything, I must say. <laughs> no, usually you go in the studio, and you know you've got your compositions, you've rehearsed with the band, and all other kinds of things are going on with a, a studio recording of of pre-composed uh, composition and things. It's a whole different animal. <laughs> uh, so, sure, it's affected me. It's allowed me to do something I never would have done. <laughs> I, I think, like it. Uh, next, next, what's up for me is probably, I think it's time for me to do a live album. This is the closest thing I've ever done to a live album. You have 18, if I'm correct, albums out, right? I think, I think it's 20. It's I think 20. it's 20. Okay. Yeah. And you never have one single live one. No. Yes, and you want to know why? Album. Yes. Oh, I want to. It's not, believe me, it's not from not wanting to. And I, I want it to be only... one of your world music ones, because like I was <laughs> yeah. telling you before the show, so I okay. just get into that. Okay. All right, we'll go. Let's go there. <laughs> so you had, with, uh, I'm going to bitch their names wrong, but Geef Bennett, right? Geef Bennett? Yeah. Masaka, right? Mia Masoka. Wow, that was bad. <laughs> Jiha Kim. <laughs> Um, uh, Jin Hee Kim. That's Jin Hee. <laughs> wow. I know. And Min I'm, and Min yeah. Xiao Fan. Don't forget Min Xiao Fan. Yes, on the Peppa. <laughs> yes, Peppa. On the Peppa. How did you meet them? How did you convince all four of them to play together? <laughs> and oh, who composed great, these? <laughs> these are great musicians. I mean, yes, they come from different. Uh, Uh, world music traditions, but these are also contemporary music thinker improvisers, people who are used to playing with improvisers outside their tradition. <laughs> you should know that. They, these are very exceptional women. Um, uh, my goodness, Gita Ramanathan Bennett, who sadly passed away last year, was somebody I met back in New Haven uh, many, many years ago. Uh, she was uh, married to a great composer and drummer named Frank Bennett, who I used to play with. And uh, we used to perform pieces that uh, Frank Bennett used to write uh, that combined uh, South Indian Carnatic music mm -hmm. with improvisational jazz. And he wrote these pieces for Gita and I. <laughs> oh. uh, so that's how far back that association went. Uh, my goodness, Jin He, um, I'm trying to think... I might uh, have met Jin Hee and, and Min Xiao Fen and uh, Mia through some of these very interesting large ensemble collaborations I've done with the Sarah Weaver ensembles. I, I'm not sure if that's the case, but I, I can remember doing quite a few 
large ensemble pieces that involved world music musicians, and I would get to know them, uh, you know, in, in improvised settings like that, you know. So I think that's where a lot of it came from. I, I can't remember exactly, but I can remember doing a concert at the UN <laughs> where yeah. we had a large ensemble in Dubai, in, in Korea, <laughs> in, in Beijing, and, and in New York playing all this music simultaneously. And uh, some, of the, some of these musicians were a part of that. Uh, I don't know much about the Dubai music scene. How is that compared to at least New York? I, I wish I could speak with, with knowledge to you, Leandra. I don't know either. Okay. I just know that they're great, great creative musicians everywhere on this planet. And uh, having this Jack Trip software to perform with is uh, it's a very, very detailed uh, technical process. But man, when it works, uh, it, it, it gives you goosebumps to think about I, some of the solos that I played with some Korean flute players while they were sitting there in Seoul, while I was sitting in New York City, you know. Just think about it. <laughs> it's a mind blower. That's it's great. a mind blower. <laughs> that might affect live music, I think, even though I don't want it to. Because if I could just hear the people, best... Hmm? After you? Yeah, no, you're right. Just playing with musicians across the ocean, halfway across the globe, why not? <laughs> and if if you can. That quali- I mean, quality of musicians, and they're that good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and another thing I wish to know about. So you got commissioned by Nassau mm-hmm. to write three compositions. How yeah, did you get big... that? And how All come right, you, you only to... have an asteroid named after you? <laughs> I want a planet, a star, something. Well, man, I'm very happy about this asteroid. It's the... Um... Brian Skiff, the astronomer who discovered that asteroid, who was a jazz fan at the time and got to name it, he says it has a very eccentric orbit. It's kind of potato-shaped. <laughs> he once showed me. Uh, so I'm, I'm very proud of having that asteroid. <laughs> so he just found it by chance, I guess, and then he, decide, well, he, he reaches out to you and asks if he can name it after you? Well, he's a, a big jazz fan. Uh, his observatory... Um, the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, they often, uh, the astronomers, they, they have to work very, very late at night to do what they do. And uh, Brian was a big jazz fan. And uh, I think he was listening to an album of mine at the time called Art and Aviation, which was music that was very much inspired by that NASA experience. And I guess the forces collided and he found the asteroid and he, that, he was listening to art and aviation and I think that's how it happened. Something like that. And that might have been how it happened. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I don't have anything like that named after me. I wish for a star or a planet. And did you get to see it yourself, the actual asteroid? Or did he send you a picture? He showed, me the, tra- he showed me the trajectory. I think it, he did show me a snapshot once or something of it. It was a while ago, but it, it exists. It exists. Uh, the NASA story, it's a great story, <laughs> if you have the time to listen to it. Yes, we do, and I want to hear it. Okay. <laughs> In the early 80s, you know, the things were not going great for me. Uh, there wasn't any recording prospects. Nobody was recording new young jazz artists. Uh, just things, everything was just too hard. Nothing was coming easy. And I was out at dinner one night with um, an actor friend of my husband and mine named Brian Dennehy, 
Maybe uh, some of your listeners know who Brian Dennehy is, but he's a great, great actor that you've seen in film and, and TV. I'm not really a and, uh, movie person, so okay. Well, other, other people, other people will know who okay, Brian I'll, is. I'll stop. <laughs> anyway, so Brian says, oh, "How are things going, Jane?" I says, "Well, Brian, you know, things aren't going so great. I don't know what to do." And so Brian says to me, "Why don't you write a letter? What are you interested, in? Jane? Jane, what are you interested in?" I says, well, I've been interested in the space program ever since the first Mercury days. I've watched every launch, every landing. I've just been a space junkie, you know. From the very beginning of the space program, you know, in the 1960s, I watched every one. I just always had this thing for space <laughs> and space exploration. So Brian says to me, why don't you write a letter to NASA? <laughs> I says, what do you mean write a letter to NASA? He says, well, just write them. Tell them what you're interested in, you know. <laughs> and so I guess I was that desperate, <laughs> Leander, that I just, I sat down and typed. I can remember the typewriter. I typed a record, you know, a, a letter. Uh, complete message in a bottle, completely in the dark. And I just wrote NASA a letter just inquiring whether anybody at NASA had done any research at all on the future of the arts in space or in zero gravity. Something that interested me, you know? Actually, okay, letter in a bottle, right? Letter in a bottle. Six months later, I get this envelope in the mail. <laughs> it has the NASA logo on, you know, the worm, the NASA worm. I says, what the heck, you know? And it was a response letter from a man by the name of Bob Schulman, who was, at that time, the director and head of something at NASA that I didn't even know existed called the NASA Art Program. NASA, since the beginning of space exploration, has commissioned visual artists to visit um, all, all the locations where space and space exploration activity takes place, everything from you know, the Kennedy Space Center to Jet Propulsion Laboratory to Houston to... Uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they commission very, very highly you know, visible and established visual artists to experience seeing these facilities and what goes on at NASA and then to create a work of visual art that was would contribute to their what was then their traveling space art collection. Robert Rauschenberg was one of them. You know, Many, many, many great, great, Dan Naminga, great, great artists. So... Lucky for me, uh, a I, I, I generated this correspondence with this Bob Schulman, the head of the NASA art program, over the years, and we corresponded with one another. Turns out he was a diehard jazz fan. So I started to share my music with him and what I was interested in. And, and he, sent, he would send me stuff, press releases, pictures of deep space probe imagery from the Jet Propulsion Lab, uh, and, oh, God, he sent me all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it was so cool. And little by little, as this correspondence went on for a year or two, I broached the idea to Bob. I says, well, how about commissioning the first you know, musician at NASA instead of an artist? And he just thought that was the greatest. And that was the start of it. Uh, he pulled together these huge sponsors I played a concert at the Kennedy Space Center to premiere this new work, right? 
that involved jazz musicians and the Brevard Symphony Orchestra and a surround sound speaker system. And uh, astronauts were in attendance. And it took place at the Kennedy Space Center. It was one of the most, a peak experience of my life. I, I met astronaut John Young <laughs> and Robert Crippen. <laughs> I met a guy who went to the moon. <laughs> so, you know, this was a really exciting experience for me. And uh, it, it snowballed. Uh, I think it was Martin Marietta was one of the sponsors of, you know, space, space industry, you know, helped sponsor the concert, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it was all having to do with this very visionary man named Bob Shulman, uh, who was at NASA at the time and thought this would be a cool thing to happen. So I became a member of this NASA art team. I, I went where the visual artists went. And instead of, you know, sketchbooks, I had my, you were microphones. I was recording stuff, <laughs> you know, sound sources and things. Everything from the launch to the landing to uh, deep space probe information from the Jet Propulsion Lab. I, I went everywhere. <laughs> I went to Houston. I went, saw, saw how the astronauts were trained underwater. All of that. <laughs> it was like amazing. <laughs> that's my story. No, that's great. And I know of John Young. Apollo 16. Now, did he say anything special about the? I'm just curious because, you know. Yeah, I'll tell you something very cool that he said. He introduced the music, before the music with the orchestra and the jazz musicians began, um, he gave a talk uh, showing some of his own personal photographs from the moon. And I'll never forget one of the most uh, meaningful and, and resonant things he said to the audience and, and it it really struck a chord with me, was he was showing these pictures of these beautiful moonscapes with these beautiful gradations of, you know, gray, you know, it was black and white, but it was like, like you've never seen the moon before. He said two things. He said, one, I'm showing you these pictures, but you can never imagine the, how many shades of gray there were when you were actually saw the moon. It wasn't as flat as it looks on these pictures, you know. He says, the amazing shades of gray that you'd see. And he said, and you know, as astronauts, we try to communicate to other people what we experienced and saw. But he said, it, it takes an artist to help look at the same information and reimagine it and reinterpret it for you so you can feel what we felt. Essentially something like that. So you can feel what we saw. And it was a great... Uh, wonderful um, advocation, you know, advocate for, for why, why artists at, at, at NASA <laughs> to help communicate. So Never forget that. I'll never forget that. We need to get you on the Virgin Galactic or on SpaceX <laughs> to actually see it. So you could probably oh my- write like the album of the year type of thing. <laughs> You remember, sadly, uh, one of the uh, astronauts who passed away in the Challenger accident was Ron McNair, mm. who was a soprano saxophone player. There's footage of him playing soprano saxophone in zero G. That was before the, you know, I, an earlier flight. Yeah. Oh. Amazing, huh? Learn something new every day at the top of that. Yeah. Yeah. So did you ever apply to be an astronaut after that or anything? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no. I don't think I'd even make it through the vomit comet, you know. <laughs> but in my imagination and in my mind, I'm very much in space. No question about it. <laughs> okay, so building off that. So you said that you had been problems in the early 
80s unjust music. Why do you think that was? Oh, it could be a lot of things. One, I was, you know, an independent. I was playing, trying to play original music that wasn't all standards, you know, all identifiable to people. That's right there. That's a start. Two, I'm a woman playing playing a saxophone. That was, that's still uh, new and not entirely accepted. Um, and and yet, not only that, but starting my own record company, you know, just trying to call all the shots. <laughs> that just you know, I, I can cite a few other women who who've done it, but it not many by the, you know at, at at that era. So you know, there's a, there's a lot coming up against a lot and a lot of preconceptions uh, about an artist who's not taking the, a traditional path to, uh, through their artistry um, that that confuses people. Let's face it, you know, confuses people. What's the traditional path? You got a struggle part. The part where you um, you apprentice by playing as a side person with somebody else's ensemble, you travel, you go on the road for however many years, people get you to record, people get to know you, you know, over time, and then little by little you step out on your own. You know, you know it's a long path, right? That's a, that's a traditional mentorship path. That was that wasn't my uh, journey at all. <laughs> I did play for a bit with Vibus David Friedman for a little while. We went on the road in Germany for a year or so, and um, that's as close as I got to that experience. Um, but really, a, a very, very different journey for me. Trying to do uh, original, you know, original concerts in small venues any way I could, you know. Okay, and the woman in jazz part. Now, mm-hmm. I always like to hear my colleagues' point of view on that so do you think it really held you back do you think it still holds you back you know holding back uh, in terms of the phone calls that didn't come in terms of uh, opportunities that might have come to my male colleagues at the same age or same experience there could have been a different you know it's difficult yes it's difficult for everybody but could that have affected absolutely you know uh, in terms of the the club and, and the clique of musicians who find their way together to to help one another to you know to work whatever that that could have been you know a, a component of it. Did it hinder me? You know, I tend to look at it like the way I described to you about the independent music experience that um, I had to be creative, Leander. I had. I had to think of an. You, you can see this thread in my thinking. If one door was closed, I had to find another way to open some other door that that wasn't apparent at the time, and that contributed to that kind of thinking. I had to improvise a living in music as much as I had to improvise improvising. I also had to be just as creative about how I could put it together um, in a different way that hadn't been done. You know, that hadn't been done before. Um, so it, it fat, it forged who I am, no question about it. And, uh, I definitely was one of those, as you get to know me, I was one of those people that went, went through the early part of my career with blinders on almost, uh, just to get through the experience that I, I got through. It, it's, it's a, a defense, it's a strategy, but it worked. <laughs> it worked for you, but I hear people saying like, 
some people have tunnel vision and that hurts them. They lose mm-hmm. out on opportunities. They lose out on this and that. Example Not an easy like, path. Yeah. They like say that you think jazz play, is supposed to be played only this way mm-hmm. when it, that's not the case. You think that hinders young musicians? Oh, anybody telling you what you can and can't do is going to hinder you. This is a creative medium. Um, I have to say that that uh, the people who I found it, who I gravitated towards, who I hung out with, who I stayed with, um, were much more creative and open in their thinking than that. Even some of the older generation guys who I found and, and hung out with. Uh, interestingly enough, I could cite uh, the great drummer Ed Blackwell as one of the people who... Uh, years ago, when he was a young man, like in the 50s, playing with with Ornette Coleman and other musicians would come up to him and say, what are you playing with that guy for? He can't play. <laughs> He's crazy. And Ed would just say, I, I like him. And, and you know, hist- history proved him right, you know. <laughs> and uh, Ed, when I, I remember calling up, you know, ask him, you know, when I made that first recording for Enger Records with Charlie Hayden, Ed Blackwell and Fred Hirsch. Ed liked what he heard. That's what he based, <laughs> you know, what he did with. And if he liked it, then that, that's the music he was, and that was, that was the musician he was going to play with. So, you know, it's not just an age factor, you know. It's, it's, it's the personality of the, of the musicians and the people. What, what's their mind, their openness of their mind? So is that, what you, is that something you suggest to the people you teach? To stay more open-minded? Do you tell them to explore more? Do you tell them to do it your way? What do you suggest to them? Well, actually, even more pointed than that, I say, you know, when you encounter a musician who, who is making music that you don't understand, you don't understand it. It just confuses you. It's not about like or like. You just don't understand it. Don't be afraid. Most people respond that to that with fear. But if you get rid of the fear... And keep an open mind about what might be possible. You can find things about other musicians and ways of thinking about music that are completely different from the way you think, but can affect your thought and affect the way you collaborate and play and make you a, a, a much more interesting <laughs> musician. So that's what, that's what I try to communicate to young, young musicians. Um, don't be afraid when something... Um, is new and different. Okay. Now, I have to ask, how did you get that gig with Fred? Fred, uh, I met Fred so early on when I came to New York. He was, I was, I went to uh, Bradley's, uh, ostensibly to hear Charlie Hayden. He was playing duets with Charlie Hayden. <laughs> it's just, this We're talking like 1970s. Eight, nine or something like that at Bradley's. And uh, I went and I heard uh, Fred Hirsch and Charlie Hayden playing duets. And when I heard Fred, I said, that's the pianist I want to play with. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> Wait, you just asked him to play and he just let you? Like, and you just met up? And well, we, you have to understand, we're both the same age. <laughs> we're, we're colleagues. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, he was he was the pianist that I very much when I got the opportunity to record on Enja, uh, I I wanted Fred to be that pianist and absolutely he was on board to play with the Charlie and Ed so 
That was the band I put together. Uh, wow. Like, you're just like, yeah, I want to play with him. <laughs> I got to play with him. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one thing, I like I said, what I was telling you. When my veterans or seniors get to speak about the music, it's just like all this stuff that just falls in place. Not by pure luck, but it just happens. It's just, I find that fascinating. Yeah. Uh, what about... Not everything does. Not everything not does. Everything, I mean, the, but, we're, we're, we're not talking on the radio about all the things that didn't happen, the gigs that didn't happen, or the thing, the gigs you didn't get, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, but yes, you're right about that. I mean, <laughs> would you like to share one of those, or should I ask a different question? I have a great, great one I want to share with the world, because, you know, every, every musician looks back on their career about, what mistake did you make? <laughs> Here's the biggest mistake I made in my career, and I'll never forgive myself for this. The great singer-songwriter Laura Nero once called me up to, to go on tour with her. Uh, it was a latter part. It was her return career, you know, it was the latter part of her life. And I, I was busy at the time. I didn't want to leave New York. I just, and I had grown up uh, listening to her music. I mean, I knew her music deep in my soul. <laughs> and I didn't, I, you know, whatever else was going on in my life at the time, I just, I didn't accept the offer. And I, I've been kicking myself every year since. Why didn't I go off with Laura Nero? That would have been the greatest experience. Oh, well. So that's, that's, that's the one that got away. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, yeah. If it makes you feel any better, somebody once told me that they didn't, they turned down an offer, opportunity to play off the wall. That album, mm -hmm. they turned mm -hmm. it down. No. Yeah. And I was just like, ouch. Yeah, it's the one that got away. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Everybody's got a story like everybody's got a story like that. Okay. So how did you meet Kenny Wheeler? Uh, let me think. How did I I'm trying to remember. Um Kenny. I think Kenny was one of those musicians who I sought after. His music and his album was one of the most pivotal musical influences in my creative thinking. It was an album of his uh, with Jack DeJohnette, Keith Jarrett, um, Dave Holland called, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, called Gnu High. I lived on this album. I played it over and over and over. You know, those are the LPs, LPs. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love this guy. I loved the way he thought. I loved his sound. I loved the struggle in his instrument. I thought he was exceptional. And so I, so I forget who it was that got me his phone number. I, I sought him out <laughs> and asked him to record with me. And... He had listened to some of the work that I had done, and again, it was like Blackwell. He liked what he heard, <laughs> and so so the collaboration began. Two two wonderful records together. I'll never ever forget my collaboration with Kenny. Okay. Mm. Now, one thing I do talk about on the show a lot is how I feel the state of jazz is declining. What is something you would do to try to make it more? Known more mainstream, etc. Find 
and and I think there's a younger generation that's that's doing this already. It's it's happening, and, and it by necessity, and by choice, to find uh, ways of performing this music outside of what people think of as a traditional jazz club. <laughs> to find to find new exciting environments where this music can be played. It's so full of creativity and imagination whether it's in museums or I spent a lot of time trying to play this music in planetariums, uh, uh, thinking in just outside the box where people are allowing their minds to be open and stimulated to hear this music, why not? Does it have to be a club? No. <laughs> That's my thinking. Where, wherever people want to hear music, let it be, you know, let it, let it happen. If you could make your dream album, with no money, money's not a problem, you could have any artist you want, what type of project would you do and who would be on it? Folks that are alive and well today. <laughs> I mean, this is alive and well today. Yes. Yeah, alive and well. Otherwise, if we're going for all of all time, that would be a hard one. <laughs> um to my great sadness, one of my hopes and dreams, uh, and I've never said this publicly before either, was I always wanted to play with Keith Jarrett. I, I feel something in the way he creates melody that I understand. And uh, being a melody, an improvisatory me melody maker myself, I always found a wonderful simpatico in his thinking. And sadly, as, as we know, he, he can't perform quite so much anymore uh, with his health. But that's something that I always wished for. And uh, I wish it could be. <laughs> so that's my wish. <laughs> okay. And what is the best compliment you have ever received? Wow, that's a rough one. Because, <laughs> you know, a lot of musicians, I'm not very good at taking them in, you know. <laughs> you know, it's always like, you know, well, I got to work on that. <laughs> It was okay, but you know, <laughs> needs a little, you know, needs a little more finessing or something. Uh, that that's a hard one. That one I can't think of an answer for, Leandra. I can't. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, what is something that you would tell all young artists right now that are just starting? Yeah, finding your style is a lonesome trial. It takes a long time to hone a voice. It takes a long time uh, as an improviser to, to get to a, a stage in your, your, your journey where you, you can create an improvised solo uh, with, with, that's informed by a lot of choice-taking over a lifetime. That's how I would describe it. It's a lot of talk about how um, improvisers, uh, among musicians, how improvisers the quality of their improvisational voices when they get into their 60s and 70s and stuff and, and how it shifts and changes and matures and all that. There's something to it. I, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know that having had the experience of making lots of choices over a lifetime as a player and the ones that you hone down and pick after you've made all those choices, is, is an, it's, interest, it's interesting. <laughs> it's really interesting. So um, be patient. That's what I say to young people. It takes a long time, but it's a journey worth taking. Okay. 
Well, hopefully people take that in mind because I hear a lot of young people complaining every single step of the way. Of course. Everybody's <laughs> impatient. Sure. It's, it's, it's in the nature to be impatient. It's okay. That's part of being wh- whatever age you are, you know? That's important. You know? Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You, you got you to gotta be that way. You have to. That's what propels you forward. What the heck? Okay. Well, before you go, we normally like to give a shout out and show respects to the artists who came before us. So mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one. And tell us why. On trumpet, Lee Morgan or Freddie Hubbard? Lee Morgan, Freddie Hubbard, both great individual sounds and voices on the trumpet. I love the trumpet. I wish I had, I wish I had played the trumpet. <laughs> Really? Okay. I, I get I get more from trumpet players than I do from saxophone players sometimes because I love the inherent struggle that's in the instrument. That's why I love Kenny Wheeler so much, you know. But uh, these are great trumpet voices who can speak to a soprano saxophone player <laughs> about how to reach for notes that you can't reach yet. That's what I find in their sounds. So you're going with? Oh no, I'm, I I wouldn't pick. Oh that, come on! <laughs> no, <laughs> it's oh, gonna be I, one of know, those where she don't choose. Okay, fine. No, no, I'm not gonna choose. No, and, and there's a whole lot of other trumpet players I I could add to that list that I'm very fond of. So, but I I'm telling you, I love the trumpet. There's there's not a trumpet player I don't like. <laughs> okay, okay. So on bass, who would you add a play with? Let's try it that way. Okay. Ron Carter or Christian McBride? Hands down. I, I wish to the day I could play with Ron Carter. He's also a, a mutual friend of uh, my engineer, Jim Anderson. Uh, Jim also records Ron. I hope someday that I get a chance to, re- to, to play with Ron. That would be such a kick. <laughs> okay. On piano. Bill Evans? Or Duke Ellington? Bill Evans, no question about it. He was a great influence on my thinking. Great, great influence on my thinking. I would have loved to have played with him. I did get to hear him live several times, and they're very memorable performance experiences, but I missed out on the chance to play with that master. Not that I wouldn't love to play with Duke Ellington too, but Bill Evans... He speaks to something in me, you know. Okay. On drums, Tony Williams or Shelly E? Tony Williams. Okay. <laughs> master, master orchestrator at the drums. I would love to play with him, especially when he stops and starts. <laughs> I know you mean that. <laughs> master orchestrator. Would love to experience that. And let's try to make the last one difficult for you. So on saxophone. Uh-oh. Uh, we'll go with Cannonball. Mm-hmm. Or Coleman Hawkins. Oh, two different, different uh, flavors. But Coleman Hawkins. Wow. The father of the tenor saxophone. 
Same reason Sonny Rollins loved him. He, he, he found notes that were outside the universe of his time. I, anytime I hear his solos, he, they were so, his melodic thinking was so advanced. Cannonball Adderley, oh, to be around the bubbling rhythm that he had inside that horn. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to be next to, oh, I would just die to be next to that, that rhythmic impulse. There was such joy, such a rhythmic vitality in his natural flow. I would have loved to have felt that. So in each of those people, I, I can see different things that I would, I would relate to. You know? I know you like either or, but sometimes you just can't, especially with my instrument. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair, 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 fair. <laughs> well, ma'am, can you tell everyone your website, your social media, where to find you, and of course, where to find this album? Sure. Well, the most important thing is this brand new album called Tuesdays with drummer percussionist Allison Miller, and it appears on Bandcamp under Allison Miller's Bandcamp site. That's that's where you can get it right away. Yeah. Very easy. And uh, you can learn more about my background at www.janeirabloom.com. That's my website. And... Uh, I'm uh, represented uh, by an organization called Crossover Media. Uh, it happens that my niece, Amanda Bloom, is running the campaign that, that found you, Leander, uh, and is organizing all the outreach for this new album. So you can also learn more about my work at Crossover Media mm -hmm. uh, and contact Amanda Bloom or Max, uh, the owner of the company, Max Horowitz. Do you have any social so media? There's all kinds of ways. Social media, everything, yeah. And radio, all, what is it under? all of the above. I haven't got I haven't got it handy. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, no problem. I'll find but we, that. we could have, we can check in with uh, Amanda. Can give it to you. Yeah. Okay, I post that up on the website and everything. Digi digital immigrant here. Digital immigrant. <laughs> <laughs> well, Abby, well, thank you for joining us, ma'am. Means a lot. Love oh. your stories, Leander. It's been so much fun talking to you. You asked some really different questions. Thank you. It's it's a provocative for me to not to go the usual places. Thanks. I mean. Not everyone I get to speak to has an asteroid named after them, so I'm kind of <laughs> jealous of you there. <laughs> and everyone, this is Leanna from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>